Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey all, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. How y'all doing? And we are still in February in the middle of a heat wave in Chicago. (laughs) 58 degrees today. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, all of you wonderful people uh, who are listening to us, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, He's being sarcastic (laughs) if you're listening to this in real time. I'm (laughs) not. Yeah, it's it is uncharacteristically warm out here in normally sunny Southern California. We have been hit by a, I think it's called a a, a river or something like that. Some some sort of a, a an above ground climactic oh, yeah. uh, river. Oh yeah, the uh, L A. the L A. River actually has water. No, no, <laughs> that's not it. <laughs> No, no, the climatic there, there, but essentially brought in and dumped the equivalent of maybe three months worth of rain in two days. It was crazy over here. Yeah, so now, I'm, I'm wishing I was in Chicago where it's warm. <laughs> now, listening audience, you may wonder what, if anything, this has to do with this week's topic. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little curious myself, and I know the topic. We're going to find out that climate change or discussions of statistics were used in an epic smackdown in a new segment that Santosh and I are introducing for Black History Month called Who Charted? <laughs> I absolutely love Who Charted. For one of our first Who Charted, we're, we're going to talk about the achievements of a few figures who deserve more than just a quick byline. And to start, I figured we could talk about one of the, well, to talk about the first African-American physician. Yes. So we're not talking about uh, black doctors. 
uh, of, you know, kind of all stripes, because, you know, if we go back into antiquity, we have people who are practicing medicine of all colors, genders, races, all kinds of things, as far back as you can think. But once the MD, the medical doctor, uh, I, I should say credential or degree was created and boarded in the United States uh, in the 1800s, uh, we're talking about the very first African-American to earn this degree and practice medicine here in the United States. And Josh, I was kind of, when, when you introduced this gentleman, I was a little shocked at how early this happened. So let's start with the story of James McCune Smith, mm-hmm. born into slavery in 1813 in New York City to Lavinia Smith and uh, a, an enslaved black woman from South Carolina and Samuel Smith, a white merchant slave owner. Oh, okay. So uh, a very sadly too common story uh, in this one. So uh, I just, just to start things off is a gentleman who was born as an enslaved person and then went on to earn his medical degree What's your excuse? Is what I'm saying. <laughs> All y'all in 2023. <laughs> he was legally freed after New York passed the Emancipation Act on July 14th, 1827, and he was 14 years old at the time. He continued to work as a bonded blacksmith uh, six days a week, and then he was studying to prepare for college. Greek, Latin, you know, as one does. Graduated with honors from the African Free School Number no. 2, which was a school founded by an abolitionist. Um, yeah. Despite all his accomplishments and intelligence, he was denied admission to medical schools in the United States because he was black, but was accepted to the University of Glasgow. He had applied to Columbia. They said no. And then Geneva Medical College in New York State, not Switzerland. So they said no. And so uh, I guess one of his uh, mentors, um, who was actually a reverend, said, hey, you know, go across to uh, old country. On graduation, also with honors, he got a triple degree, a BA and MA, uh, and sorry, a BA and MS, and then an MD. He was awarded a prestigious gynecological residency in Glasgow. Try saying that three times fast prestigious gynecological residency in Glasgow. That is difficult. That's tough. Based on that experience, he published two articles in the London Medical Gazette, which are not only the very first scientific articles published by an African-American in a scientific journal, so that's already impressive, but they also were published to expose the unethical use of an experimental drug on non-consenting patients. Oh, oh, wow. So uh, I, I don't have the contents of the the actual papers that he published, but this was massive. So he was looking at medical practice as well as ethics at the same time, and very, very progressive for his time, ethics as it pertained to the care of women which was horribly neglected, which is still neglected today. 
the letter itself, when you read it, is very polite and kind of is like, hey, you know, administration officials, I just wanted to make you aware that when this doctor is staffing the hospital, it is always full to beds. Whereas when this doctor is staffing, we mysteriously only have about four fifths of our patients. And then let me drop some knowledge on you about why that may be. (laughs) Okay. So you're about to hear some some statistical smack talk, and this is going to be a recurring theme. So in this case, Dr. McCune-Smith charted. Yes. And here's some of the things he charted. Mm -hmm. He discovered that Alexander Hane was one of the senior doctors in the hospital, was treating women suffering from gonorrhea. This was a women's hospital. A lot of the women were there for venereal disease, among other things. Um, But for our story, and this Dr. Hannay was treating women suffering from gonorrhea with a drug called silver nitrate. Are you familiar with silver nitrate, Santosh? Yes. So silver nitrate, either as a tincture or as a patch, is still used in this day and age for uh, treatment of burns. Specifically, you use it as a covering to prevent infection when you have burned and exposed skin. It's not a fantastic antiseptic to use on an invasive basis because essentially silver nitrate just destroys cells in general. It doesn't care if it's bacterial cells or human cells or whatever. So you tend to cause quite a bit of tissue damage along with trying to kill the bacteria. And oftentimes that's a losing battle. But we are, you know, in, in 1837, we're close to 100 plus years before the advent of any modern antibiotics. So that's what we had. So yeah, doctors would use this as a topical treatment for infected skin tissue or to cauterize and stop bleeding. But mm-hmm. that was in low concentrations, in a solution, and then applied as a last resort. Dr. Yeah. Hennett, when when you couldn't figure out any other way to treat said disease, then you'd go to this. Dr. Hane was administering the drug in a solid form, so highly concentrated, and he thought this was a rather innovative. And you know, when his patients were like, "Could you please make something less painful?" Because as you can imagine, you need a topical thing to smear on the surface of a skin if you were trying to treat an inside cavity. You're using a much larger, more concentrated, and therefore more painful treatment. Yeah, and that burning sensation that they're talking about is not minor. Um, Some of us have experienced it, Josh, when if you're old enough to have had a mother or father or parent apply iodine on, on a cut or open wound, that, but imagine that he was applying this substance into the vaginal canal on the mucosa. Ow. Now, so okay. Dr. McCune-Smith, during his investigation, realized he couldn't just make the accusation on a case of word against word. He'd never be believed. So instead, right. he got figures from the hospital registers that recorded the condition of patients being treated in the hospital over an entire year. Mm, This was part of a new science being developed at the time called statistics. (laughs) So he was performing a retrospective study. Okay. 
And as a result of this, he was able to bring the receipts and show that uh, a lot of the patients under Hane's care weren't actually doing well. They were suffering miscarriages, illnesses, another bunch of, well, if not causation, then some pretty suspicious correlation in side effects, but all of those were being left off the hospital registers, hence the decreased number of beds reported whenever that doctor was on staff. He was tinkering with his results in order to make his treatment look better. And if it's one thing to hear an accusation from some kind of minority figure which is already bad enough. But even if you try and brush that off, he brought all the evidence that said he could not be ignored. And this is scientific fraud. Yeah, absolutely. So not only, you know, experimenting on these women, but just absolutely wrecking your actual, you know, monitoring. Uh, As if, for instance, if Hene actually did have good results, uh, you know, with this rather barbaric and and horrible treatment that he devised, he wouldn't have record of that either, which was, it's kind of a stupid thing to do. The end result, of course, is he brought attention to the plight of these women who he interviewed directly to gather some of his evidence as well. Yeah. Now, now this is not an isolated trend for him. He was hired later in 1846 to the Colored Orphan Asylum because they had 200 children in residence, and one in 20 of them were dying from measles, smallpox, or tuberculosis. Uh, Measles, for which there was no vaccine, tuberculosis, for which there was no antibiotic, and smallpox. And I think by that time, we had uh, variolation. So we we did have immunization for smallpox. Um, Just to clarify, Josh, this was after he had returned back to the United States, right? He came back to Manhattan to work. That's that's correct. This is in New York. Gotcha, and gotcha. The okay. second he landed there, he started debunking claims that homeopathic treatments reduced death rates in orphanages. My kind of oh, guy. My hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Writing that allopathy, which is what Western medicine is, saves it's called <laughs> saves seven times more patients than homeop than homeopathy. And arguing yeah that homeopathy is the most deadly quackery that curses the 19th century. <laughs> and the 20th and the 21st. Although it's it's being like followed up by a lot of other quackery like anti-vaccination right now. So uh, for people who don't know, homeopathy is straight up quackery. I believe the founder uh, proudly stated that it had really no scientific basis. It functions on a weird, un- completely unproven principle that like can treat like. So you can use gonorrhea to treat gonorrhea kind of a thing. Um, it's it's a little you know piece of insane. Um, allopathy at that time, which is what we've now called medicine, is it's a little bit silly, Josh. It's actually a name given to us derisively by other types of physicians because allo means other so we were like oh the other medicine you know (laughs) well to that point smith regularly gave vaccinations for smallpox and decreased the mortality rate by somewhere between five and ten percent 
in that orphanage. Oh, uh, way to go. Wow. In 1840, he wrote the very first case report called A Case of Tylism with Fatal Termination, which described a woman with excessive salivation, glossitis, mm-hmm. and, which is inflammation of the tongue, and gingivitis, inflammation of the gums, after ingesting a prescription for medical mercury who died as a result. But because of discrimination, he couldn't publish his work in any medical journal. Oh, okay. Uh, Now, a white physician came along, read Smith's case before the New York Medical and Surgical Society, and, of course, they published it under another name. Oh, but Well, his case report, though, preceded the first published account of what we call Sialuria, which was in 1842 in PubMed. So he did it two years before it was published by a white physician. Oh, okay. So he observed this effect from uh, mercury poisoning, essentially, mm-hmm. and published it. So he wasn't the first black person to publish this case and identify this disease. He was the first person. <laughs> yes. Okay, got it. <laughs> and he wasn't allowed the, the credit he was due. Oh, okay. All right. Now, he did finally manage to start breaking into. Uh, more traditional medical journals and became the first black physician to publish a paper uh, in the formal medical literature, which was a case series of five women whose menses had stopped as a result of opioid use. This was early, earliest evidence of narcotics diversion. So describing an 18 year old woman who took a prescription to treat menstrual cramps, who without his knowledge continued using the pills and it hinted at social determinants of health. So you have social medicine, addiction medicine, women's health, which is, again, themes that you keep seeing him advocate for. But I think my absolute favorite okay. <laughs> okay. would be his response to John C. Calhoun, who was the Secretary of State at the time, fusing his medical activism and scientific rigor to debunk medical racism. Oh, okay, so... Uh, Smith uh, or, or McCune Smith, Dr. McCune Smith took his ability to speak, you know, truth to power, that kind of a thing. And all of his experience and ability with statistics and science and medicine and everything. And he shot down an, an opinion of not just like a, a high ranking official, but like secretary of state. So what did, what was the secretary of state saying? And what did, what did Dr. McCune Smith need to debunk? So Calhoun was pro-slavery, a former U S vice president, a Senator from South Carolina who favored secession and basically used the uh-huh. 1840 census to criticize the abolition movement, saying, in all instances in which states have changed the former relation between the two races, the condition of your people, instead of being improved, has become worse. Oh. Now, there's a lot okay. of ways to respond to that. Sure. And I'm, this was like an opinion paper, right? I, he, he had the census, which basically had raw numbers, I'm guessing, on you know, number of patients that were taken in and, and uh, diagnosed with insanity, along with their race, sex, all that kind of thing. And he was able to show, I guess, just with that, that, oh, my gosh, there's a lot more insane people of color 
black Americans, African Americans than before there was slavery? Well, a simple one or two word response to what essentially was a campaign speech or frequent jibe wasn't sure. going to be sufficient. Right. So uh, Dr. James McCune Smith wrote a dissertation on the influence of climate on longevity. Oh, okay. Remember, remember right. our weather references in the beginning? Oh, that's you're bringing it back around. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> he published this in 1846, drew on okay. geography, references from the United Kingdom and France, as well as the field of biostatistics to question all of the claims. He compared mortality rates with latitude coordinates to show that people lived longer in states that abolished slavery, like New Hampshire and Connecticut, than in Georgia, where it was legal. Next, he stratified mortality rates by age, race, and place to calculate that people in New England lived longer than the South, and boldly mm -hmm. wrote that the categories in the census were socially constructed, not biological. So he said, you should oh. estimate all of my people free and enslaved together, irrespective of the division in the census, because the vast majority of those free in 1830 or 1840 were slaves 20 years before. And then he went on to show through the same census info and other papers that there was a greater difference in mortality between two counties in Georgia that had slaves than between all of New England and the South. So he basically said a lot of socioeconomic factors are what is having us die young or do poorly. And when we can get into better circumstances, you can actually live just as long or longer. And this wasn't wow. kind of really studied again until or commented on until 175 years later when we noted higher mortality rates among racial and ethnic populations due to COVID should be also analyzed by modeling socioeconomic status. So much to unpack here, which is absolutely elegant and beautiful. So first and foremost, he left behind the argument about insanity because he realized that that was a medical diagnosis and that was going to get thrown around. So kind of who cares? But he focused on mortality and then dug really deep into, you know, how poor are they? How rich are they? What other standards of living are people living under that would affect their longevity and their mortality? And then, I mean, one of the earliest things that I'm hearing about actually from Dr. McCune Smith here, which is, you know, a you know, that if you just look at race as, a, oh, that person looks black, that person looks white, you're not actually looking at their differences in biology um, because you're actually using a poor correlate. And so you actually need to look at their biological differences, which you probably couldn't in that day and age of science, but showed really, really beautifully here that, you know, the, the power of statistics there were good reasons why you had differences in longevity, but even more so, taking it a step further than if you looked at the right correlates um, and constrained your investigation properly, Mr. Calhoun, you are wrong 
<laughs> you're actually you're no no you, we we did not do better under slavery sir i i've got to add over here josh this is it this was a little bit of a, a failed follow-up attempt but it's important um you know house of representatives tried to do uh tried to call for an investigation of the census results to see if they could be recalled or reanalyzed the person who called for you know that that recall of the census and that reinvestigation john quincy adams <laughs> well while he was a uh, a representative but yeah calhoun um just put like pro slavery you know jackasses um you know, uh, and he, he he took them and he appointed them as part of the you know the census machine, uh, and that person said, "Oh no, this census is flawless," and so it was never officially changed, but the challenge still stood. And then, just you know, in retirement, he opened up the very first African American owned pharmacy in the country. <laughs> but that brings us to a break when we will come back with another episode of. Who charted? <laughs> we'll, we'll tell you after this. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And we're back. Hey, <laughs> were those some fun commercials? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Santosh, I told you yeah. my story. Who did you chart? Who charted who? Oh, <laughs> I don't know that I can out chart you. Uh, I I learned so much about Dr. McCune Smith just now, and um, I'm excited to read more. Um, I definitely do want to, uh, one of these days I'm visiting Glasgow and I'm going to, you know, uh, take a look at, at all the information I possibly can about him. Uh, but I'd actually like to, um, you know, put the Wayback machine in a little bit of a fast forward, uh, from when Dr. McCune Smith was working. And, uh, do you mind if we come up to about 1910? Sure. Take the wheel. Joystick. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you <laughs> control panel. How do we control yoke? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how this stupid thing runs. <laughs> you just you ordered it out for off of like eBay one day, and you were like, "Hey, we have a wayback machine." <laughs> anyway, onward yeah. and onward and upward. <laughs> onward and upward. Yeah. So uh, let me take you over to Louisiana. And we have, you know, 
past the days of chattel slavery, and now there uh, there is recourse for uh, Black people, African Americans, to attend colleges and even to advance to uh, medical degrees and, and beyond. But we are in the Jim Crow era. So I'd like to introduce you here in, in Louisiana to Mr. Vivian Thomas. And uh, this young man was born to Willard Maceo Thomas and the former uh, Mary Alice Eaton. And these folks uh, wanted to set him up as much as possible. They knew from a very young age that he was quite prodigious. So he went to high school and he was actually, uh, you know, they moved out over to Nashville, Tennessee, graduated in 1929. Um, and during this time, Vivian really learned to work with his hands. Dad was a carpenter and passed on just everything he could to his sons, including to Vivian. All right. So uh, Vivian goes to Fisk University. He has a carpentry job. He's repairing facility damages and all these kind of things. And he had his sights set on becoming a doctor. And he was ready to go. He uh, he was ready to go over to Vanderbilt and and you know um, take his exams, all this kind of a thing. But then it's it's 1929. We're coming up to 1930. And Josh, we are square in the Great Depression. And now there is – don't even worry about money for education. There's no money to live. So Thomas went ahead and put his educational plans on hold, uh, and he went around and looked for a job. So he asked around, and he said, here, I'm, I'm interested in being a doctor. I know that's not going to happen for me right now, but anybody and everybody who can get me into a medical profession, well, please this help is me out. This yeah. is one of the things I love is his story. You've seen uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yes, yeah. This is <laughs> this, this is a little like that. Only I he just, wasn't such I a just, little punk. <laughs> I just want well, no. I want I want our listening audience to be able to properly visualize. Yes, the story yeah, because yeah. <laughs> in an era in an era when institutional racism was still the norm. Thomas was classified and paid as a janitor, despite the yes. fact that, you know, he's doing the work of a postdoctoral researcher. He was, yeah. So he, he started out and Dr. Alfred Blaylock, um, which is, uh, we'll talk about as a big name in cardiothoracic surgery, took him under his wing and said, hey, I, I'm going to have you put my, uh, you know, the, the dogs to sleep because we're going to be doing experiments on the dog. We're going to have you, you know, put them to sleep with anesthesia. Uh, and, you know, Vivian would start out. And you're absolutely right, Josh. After the first day of work, uh, Blaylock uh, actually said, okay, we'll do another experiment. Took it a couple of And then boom, in a few weeks, Thomas is doing the surgery on his own. So <laughs> Dr. Blaylock would describe the surgery that needed to be done on that experimental animal, and he'd walk out, and Vivian Thomas would be doing the surgery, Josh. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely crazy. So, uh, you know, he he stuck with Dr. Blaylock, 
And prior to his big uh, contribution at, at Johns Hopkins, they were at Vanderbilt and they worked on hemorrhagic and traumatic shock. Uh, they worked on research uh, regarding crush syndrome, which is what happens when you have a bunch of inflammatory markers and myoglobin that just releases into the blood when a limb gets crushed. And this research actually saved thousands of soldiers uh, during World War II. So it was very, very important. And so, you know, both Thomas and Blaylock, well, sorry, Blaylock got all the recognition, <laughs> but Thomas stuck with him the whole way. And after they were working through shock, the vascular bed, fluid replacement, um, Dr. Blaylock and Vivian Thomas turned towards uh, the cardiac surgery. And uh, they actually moved over to Johns Hopkins. So yeah, this one of the models that they were working on, and this is a, a scary syndrome in babies. And it's one of the things that you absolutely don't want to hear as a new mother and father. There is a syndrome of the heart, a congenital heart disease called Tetralogy of Fallot. And essentially what happens in this disease is that the blood that's supposed to be going to the lungs and the blood that's supposed to be going out to the body is mixed. And so the baby actually looks partially oxygenated or blue. So the, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Blaylock and Vivian Thomas had been working on this dog model of a, of a blue baby, uh, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do, how to actually, um, kind of palliate this child for a while before you could do the definitive surgery to actually correct uh, this congenital malformation. Well, uh, Alfred Blaylock uh, kind of hooked up uh, professionally with Dr. Helen Tausig, uh, who is another you know wonderful cardiologist. And she was looking for a surgical solution to blue baby syndrome. And she goes up to Blaylock and, and Thomas and in a, in a very professional way, goes, Hey, maybe we can reconnect the pipes. <laughs> I, I do want to make very sure that everybody knows she did use the terms reconnect the pipes, Josh. That's verbatim folks. That's verbatim. <laughs> she said it might be, we can save these babies if we can reconnect the pipes. So, they took their work uh, from Vanderbilt, where Blaylock had uh, and uh, T Thomas had gotten very, very good at rerouting blood in these dog models of various cardiac diseases. And he found a way, uh, and really, I, it should be that said that you know Thomas uh, really found a way of joining the subclavian artery, which is the artery that runs right under your collarbone to the pulmonary artery, um, which supplies your lungs. And so now you've got blood flow, much better blood flow to the lungs, and the oxygen gets much, much, uh, you know, better oxygenated. Thomas had, you know, all of his dogs and everything else like that. And one of them, uh, he's named Anna, uh, was the first long-term survivor of this procedure. And because of that, uh, Anna actually is the only animal who has her portrait hung on the walls of Johns Hopkins <laughs> in the medical school. <laughs> in order to successfully repair this tetralogy of Fallot, Thomas was the one who developed uh, in 1946 a new surgical technique for improving circulation 
in these transposed elements. It was called an atrial septectomy. This was executed so flawlessly after all that practice, it should be, that Blaylock, <laughs> that Blaylock, upon examining the nearly undetectable suture line, was prompted to remark, Vivian, this looks like something the Lord made. Remember yeah. that phrase, because he was oh, then yeah. later taken, there was a photo of him taken as this procedure was performed to a more general audience with Thomas standing on a step stool to coach Blaylock over his shoulder. And that is in a documentary called Partners of the Heart. You have to appreciate that pun. Gets you right in the subcockles. (laughs) And And I believe, Santos, you were about to talk about a film made about it, uh, a fictional film, as opposed to Partners of the Heart. Yeah, yeah. This was more of a docudrama, uh, and it stars uh, Professor Snape. Uh, help me out, Josh. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. <laughs> the very the, the very dour actor who who you know, represented Doctor Snape so beautifully on film, but Alan Rickman as uh, Alfred Blaylock, uh, and and this they went ahead and named this movie this documentary drama. Uh, something the Lord made. And it, it is really beautiful. It, it is kind of, you know, over-dramatized and there's some several parts of it that's not terribly accurate. Uh, but I think it shows not only uh, uh, Thomas's skill and everything that he did in order to create this shunt and the surgery, but I think it really shows the beautiful relationship between Vivian Thomas and Dr. Alfred Blaylock. Dr. Blaylock essentially could not have done what he did without Vivian Thomas. In in the first case, Josh, what you were saying, 1944, when they performed the surgery on the first human infant, literally with Vivian Thomas over Dr. Blaylock's shoulder. Not only that, but because of Thomas's technical skills, um, there were no such, you know, clamps and needles and everything like the, the instruments that you needed to actually perform the surgery on a baby this small just hadn't been invented yet. So Thomas actually had adapted the needles and clamps himself. So he was welding, he was forging, he was suturing. Uh, I I really have to give it up for this young man. And for the longest time, Josh, the shunt, the, the, this uh, anastomosis was called the Blaylock Taussig anastomosis. Um, but especially in recent times, there's been a big push uh, whenever the surgery is done on a child uh, with the blue baby syndrome, they'll say, oh, we're going to put in a BTT shunt, a Blais- Blaylock Thomas Tausick shunt. That is a fantastic story. And I'm glad to see Dr. Thomas getting the recognition he deserves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's and and throughout this entire thing, you know, still called a laboratory technician, janitorial salary. Um, I'm a little sad to say he did not get the recognition that Dr. McCune Smith did in terms of earning a degree uh, and being kind of on the forefront and prominence of his field. Um, well, he, he was did very get, very much in the background. He did receive oh, an honor. He did receive an honorary degree from John Hopkins in 1976. Oh, yes, he did. This was, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of 
a, a while uh, after he had been in, you know, out of practice. But yes, it was an honorary doctorate. And it had to be a doctor of laws rather than a medical doctorate because of certain restrictions, but still really, really important. And yes, you can see his name everywhere at Johns Hopkins as one of the pioneers of cardiac surgery. And next, we will close out with one more short story. We've talked about two great men in medicine. We should at least give a nod to a great woman. 100%. Let's do it. No one docs like Gaston, watches talks like Gaston, (laughs) unblocks unblocks circulatory clots like Gaston. The first black, uh, the first black female to direct public health service. Her research is groundbreaking to none. For <laughs> she established some nationwide screening, and by the 1980s, 40 states had it done. Woo! So let's talk about Marilyn Hughes Gaston. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing she wasn't a muscle-bound brute who went around slapping books out of young maidens' hands. She was a pediatrician who Yay! Uh, who was involved in some pretty groundbreaking research on sickle cell disease. Now, she knew she wanted to become a doctor at age nine when she witnessed her mother fainting in the living room and didn't know what to do. Because her family was uninsured her mother wasn't getting any health care and that's when she wanted to be able to change the situation now Mm. that sparked her original interest in medicine but during her residency at philadelphia general hospital she was admitting a baby with a badly swollen hand but no evidence of trauma oh okay her supervising resident suggested that she check for sickle cell disease due to the race of the child And sure enough, the baby did have the condition and the swelling was from an infection. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for those who don't know, uh, sickle cell disease is prominently, uh, I should say, much more common in people of African descent, middle African descent, and uh, parts of Asia as well. And it co-evolves in areas where malaria prevalence is extremely high. The reason for this is uh, if you actually just have the sickle trait and not the disease, you're somewhat resistant to getting severe malaria. If you have the disease, however, this is a mutation in hemoglobin, the beta chain of hemoglobin. And what ends up happening in cases, especially when there's low oxygen tension, so especially at the very tips of your fingers and hands and feet, uh, the red blood cell, rather than being a malleable, like looks a little bit like a donut without a hole, it'll turn rigid and will have the sickle shape And now you have all these terrible things that can happen where the red blood cells clump up, they cause a clot or a vaso-occlusive type phenomenon, and also then make uh, you vulnerable to infections at those sites. You also eventually do occlude and destroy your spleen if you have sickle cell anemia, um, which makes you vulnerable to a host of bacterial infections as well. So this is the disease that she was studying. Over the course of several years, she was awarded several grants to study sickle cell in children, 
and in 1986 she and in 1986 she published the results of a long-term study linked in the show notes that showed long-term penicillin can prevent infections in people with sickle cell disease. This ended up being so important and successful that it laid the groundwork for screening for sickle cell disease in the general population to administer penicillin prophylactically. And with only a year after she published this paper, 40 states had adopted some form of screening. So that's that's lasting change in a very yeah. immediate sense. Huge, absolutely huge. To this day, sickle cell disease does not really get the attention that it deserves in terms of you know, need for research and improvement in people's lives. And there is definitely a racial bias here. Um, cystic fibrosis, which, you know, is, is a horrible disease, but actually affects far fewer people, gets a lot more attention. And there's no doubt, Josh, that race has a component in this because sickle cell disease does affect predominantly Black people, people of African descent. Um, penicillin, um, does a fantastic job of protecting people against these encapsulated organisms, which is the the bacteria that our spleen helps us kill. So like I said before, just with enough time with sickle cell disease, the spleen becomes infarcted and dies. And so those kids are essentially immune compromised. But if you just give them a simple prophylaxis, wow, all of a sudden you prevent them from dying, from going into the hospital. Um, it's really a wonderful thing. And as to universal screening, chances are pretty darn good, actually might be close to 100% now, that if you were born in the United States, you got a little, little drop of blood taken from your heel before you, <laughs> before you left the hospital, and you were screened for several diseases, um, one of which definitely is for sickle cell. We call this the Achilles procedure. Like the Greek myth. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> it's called a it's called a heel pr heel prick blood spot. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> My name's better. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. So three of many uh, fantastic physicians to fet during Black History Month, and uh -huh. uh, that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes along with links for further reading we're on x we're on facebook we're even on tiktok i'm not calling it that it's twitter <laughs> <laughs> damn you <laughs> sorry if there's a social media, we'll be there. Yeah, this, we'll show be there. Is, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, a spin on your globe. And once you've done all those things, find somewhere to explore. And uh, happy travels. Happy Black History Month, everybody.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.